With just a month to go before the August primaries in Kansas and Missouri, we take a look at the field in both parties. I'm Dave Helling of the Star's editorial board. You are on Deep Background. Well, joining me now to talk about all things political is the Star's chief political correspondent, Brian Lowry. Brian, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having You're me, great. Dave. Uh, Leah Becerra apparently has so much comp time or vacation time <laughs> that she's not with, with us again today, but she'll be back. She's in the great state week. of Iowa, I yeah, believe, visiting it, her mother. Well, that's great. She deserves to do that. Um, so, Brian, thanks for being with us. Um, you know, today we're taping on July 5th, which, you know, roughly a month before right. the August 7th primary. In both sides of the state line. Both sides of the state line, which is actually very helpful for us in some ways. Let's, um, so what we want to do in this podcast is g- get a sense of the races in both states, more in Kansas than Missouri. We'll do Missouri in the second half of the podcast, primarily because I think the, the most important race, we know who the winners are going to be in the primary. There's more variables in, in the Kansas. Kansas. So let's start over there, and then we'll get to Missouri. Uh, let's start with the Kansas governor's race, which I think is the most interesting, compelling uh, campaign uh, that uh, uh, listeners will want to focus on in the next couple of weeks. It, it's certainly an interesting. It's certainly an interesting race because both parties have a primary, which is very rare for Kansas. Uh, the Democrats haven't had a primary since 1998, and you know, as we've pointed out, that wasn't really a primary. Fred Phelps was one of the two <laughs> candidates. Right. So, um, and you know, it, it, it's not been. It, it, it's been a long time since both parties were going through that process in Kansas at the same time of trying to figure out who their standard bearer is. And so on the Republican side, it's really about whose party is it in the post-Brownback era. Uh, Jeff Collier is the governor and you know has had about half a year. He's had, a, he, by the primary, he'll have about a half a year to establish himself as the governor in uh, the eyes of Kansas Republicans. And so Collier has had, he's had that advantage of getting to be the governor on the campaign trail, but it's not like he had a very long time. And I'm sure if you talk to some Kansans in the street, sadly, the ones who don't subscribe to the Kansas City Star or our sister paper, the Wichita Eagle. Or listen to the podcast. Right, right. <laughs> Most importantly, listen to the podcast. Uh, some of them may not even know that Collier is is governor, right? I mean, you could you could easily probably find a few Kansans who think Brownback is still governor. Right. Do we think those um, people are going to vote, though? Those, those aren't the people who are necessarily going out to the primary. But the key is that he's not had a long time to establish himself as the governor. So he's got the advantage of being the governor. He's got some baggage from Brownback, but he's not really being uh, positioned in this race as um, the candidate who is is going to keep the state on the Brownback course because he's going up against Chris Kobach, who is seen as more conservative than Brownback. So, but we, but, but we do believe that that absent incumbency, Jeff Collier would be a non-factor in the race. Probably, I mean, nobody yeah. would know. I mean, he, so so it's everything for Collier. Oh, sure. not, not just being governor, but being lieutenant governor under Brownback. Well, that's why he's considered competitive. And think about this: is Collier. Um, Collier gets to do 
campaign stops that aren't labeled as campaign stops. He gets to do official visits as the governor to ribbon cuttings when a new factory is opening or a highway project, and he gets to go around the state uh, as the governor. And those are very important visits in a campaign, even if they aren't uh, explicitly campaign uh, visits. So it's really a fight between Collier and Kobach. You do have some other Republicans. Uh, you have some teens in the race. This has been well documented. Right, but right. you have Jim Barnett, who was the party's uh, 2006 nominee. But he, he's actually he's, – his distinction is that his running mate is his wife. Right, right, right. And you have Ken Selzer, the insurance commissioner, who I think a lot of people thought stood a – oh, he could be a guy who can unite the various wings of uh, the party together. As far as the polling has gone, uh, there's not been much public polling in the race, but the little bit of polling we've seen, Selzer really hasn't made much of a dent. Well, why on it. is that? Why don't we? Why didn't Ken Selzer, in your view, and, and and Jim Barnett get more traction? Again, a month out, it seems like if they're if they're if they're not getting you know double digits in the polls now, whatever polls there are, right. that they've got a long, long road to travel. You know, it goes back to something you said. I mean, I think Selzer, Selzer would have maybe stood a better chance if Collier hadn't been officially elevated to the office of governor. Um, and what does that say, Brian? That says that, in essence, this race was always going to be Chris Kobach and someone else. And someone else, yeah. Is that right? You think? Yeah, that's right? I mean, I think what you have to remember about Kobach is he prob- he came in with a strong base. He's a divisive figure. There are a lot of moderate Republicans who do not like him. But there are a number of hardline conservatives who are very passionate about him. Now, he's that doesn't mean he has wrapped up all of the conservative support. There's some very important constituencies, like the agricultural community, right, who have some real reservations about Kobach. But he, he comes in with a very passionate base of supporters. And he's got a big microphone. And it's not just the microphone he has uh, as is Secretary of State or by talking to outlets like the Star and the Eagle, you know, this is he's got his Breitbart column. He's a regular fixture on cable news. Um, he used to have a radio show not too long ago in Kansas City. So he has certainly been able to communicate his message out to a very devoted a group of supporters and that was always who going will to be, show up to right. the primary. And, and that yeah. was always going to be the case, right? right? I mean, once he decided he was going to run, uh, he was going to suck up a lot of the oxygen on the right side of his party. And the difficulty for Kobach, though, is he doesn't seem to have done it. He, he, or I shouldn't say difficulty. He has seemed to make no attempt to try and capture people who weren't already in his base. If you look at his campaign the statements to the visuals of him going through parades in the Jeep with the mounted replica gun. Um, This is all sort of red meat to the base. He hasn't tried to uh, necessarily reach out to that businessman, Republican, that suburban uh, Republican. And those people do vote as well. And that's really where Collier needs to get that community all behind him. But we don't have a sense, do we? uh, My own sort of view of the race is we don't. It hasn't really engaged at all on the substance of being governor. I mean, you don't. 
you know, on the Republican side, maybe on the Democratic side, which we'll get to in a minute, but you don't get the sense that they're arguing over tax policy or school school finance, even though they're different in some ways, Collier and Brownback or um, uh, Kobach, but but the campaign doesn't seem to be turning on those issues. No, I mean, Col- it's much more about Kobach a personalities has, and approach. Kobach has attacked Collier for signing the school finance right. bill or for uh, not, and you know, Kobach wants to roll back. Kobach wants to reestablish the Brownback tax cuts. Correct. Whereas that's actually an interesting thing is Collier won't say like that he wants to establish his reestablish his old bosses tax cuts. Um, but if you look at the areas that they both are focusing on, um, Collier at the most recent gubernatorial debate um, that was in Salina, and we've got one coming up uh, next Johnson week County. in Johnson County, um, but the most recent one, Collier was attacking Kobach on abortion. And it was over the fact that um, very early in his uh, political career, he, he had said uh, in some candidate questionnaires uh, for the Star and for some other outlets around here, that he was he was open to I think abortion in some cases. That, and Kobach, then, Kobach was right, right. And now he's one now he's one hundred percent against it. But and that's so, been litigated in past campaigns. Yeah. yeah. So Collier is, is yeah. seizing on that to try right. and say no, I'm the more anti-abortion. Uh, candidate. So you, you you look at and then Kobach has gone after. I am the more pro gun candidate than Jeff Collier because it's, so it's you know it is getting into those kind of old, those old standbys. Right, but guns, of guns, abortion, abortion, abortion school yeah. finance. But but my own sense of it is it's much more a an approach a style play, a style. Yeah. You know, Chris Kobach has argued repeatedly. Hey, I won't back down. I'll take the fight to them if you want a fighter. Yada yada. Where you get the sense from. Collier that he's much more amenable to discussions, compromise. Collier uh, has uh, tried to present himself as a consensus builder, and I think if you talk to some lawmakers, they would say he's he's done that certainly more so uh, than Brownback uh, did. And if if you know if you want to parse the text really closely, uh, Collier's people keep using this phrase "competent conservative." Uh, he was very resistant to actually hitting Kobach on his handling of the voting rights uh, trial. Until until the judge finally handed down the ruling, and now he has hit that hit, hit him on that a bit. But there, basically, Collier has tried to present the idea: I'm the more competent right. manager of the state. But what what role will Sam Brownback's legacy play in the decision in a month? It may not. It will play, I think, a bigger role in the general than it will in the primary. The primary. Um, but, but let me stop you there. Do you think Republicans in Kansas, a majority of Republicans, want to continue the Brownback experiment, no matter how you might define that, or are they more worried about going back to Brownback and 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 instead looking to some sort of and and then to the second part of that question, of course, is who benefits from that? Well, argument? the the irony is that Jeff Collier, who was Brownback's lieutenant governor, right. who was loyal by his side for seven years. Um, is almost getting to run as the change candidate right, right. because he's not leaning as hard into those ideological fights as as Kobach is. So people who are wary of going down that road again may favor Collier over Kobach. Right. And so how do you answer the question then? Do Republicans, in essence, look fondly back on the Brownback years and think, boy, what we really need is someone just like that going forward? Or is it, no, we need to do something else? Right. Well, I mean, if... if 
if you look well, that, at the Co- whole election hinges right. on if that. If you look at Kobach, way. he wants to reestablish the tax cuts, but right. he'll say Brownback didn't didn't cut. You know, right, and right. Collier kind cut of spending. yeah, he didn't cut spending. Uh, it's there's a there was also I think an interesting line in the uh, the the most recent debate where uh, Collier referred to himself as a work a workhorse, and he called Kobach a show horse. And then Kobach's retort to that was that he's a war horse. So the idea, so they're all horses. Right. But the idea is like the war We're horse part of the versus the <laughs> versus the the war horse. So it's you know, yeah. it, Kobach is making it clear, and people should not be surprised if he wins the nomination or if he becomes governor. Kobach is making it clear that if he is governor of Kansas, he will engage in these ideological right. uh, battles. And no one should doubt that. Yeah. So who's the favorite among that? I think it's a coin flip between the two of them. And if, if you'd asked me six so months what, ago, if yeah. you had asked me six months ago, um, I think I would have said Kobach was clearly the favorite. Now, I don't know that it's that Collier has necessarily closed the gap with Kobach. It's that Kobach hasn't really run away with it. He's not, And it goes back to what I said, where he hasn't he hasn't broadened his appeal, and so um, there. Any polling I've seen, there is a large amount of undecideds left. I, I really do think it's a two-man race now. Knock on wood, maybe I'll find out that Ken Sells or Barnett pulls off a uh, some sort of amazing yeah, upset. Yeah, right. But um, I, I really, I think it's going to come down to the two of them. Um, I wish we had better polling that I could give you a prediction, but. I think you're looking at maybe, maybe a single-digit race yeah. between the two of them, Let me just and call, you might have a plurality be, be the winner. Right, and we'll wrap up the Republican side and go to the Democrats here in just a minute. But I'll, let me offer my own observations and get your own sense of it. First of all, a two-person race, I think, hurts Kobach a little bit. Mm-hmm, if it just certainly. down to two, because you do get a sense that he might have a ceiling as well as a floor, the highest right. floor, but but a ceiling. And in a two-person race, anybody but Kobach might have some traction in the Republican Party. I think you're right that Kobach has both the the highest floor and the lowest ceiling. Yeah, the, the he's, other a, thing, he's a very small apartment. Right. The other thing is, if it's a two-person race and it's close, organization will play some role and momentum and enthusiasm. And while Chris Kobach clearly has the more enthusiastic voters... You do get a sense that Jeff Collier may be, in the end, a little more organized in terms of the apparatus in some counties like Johnson County, whereas Chris has always been much more of a, for lack of a better term, guerrilla fighter, you know, uh, momentum play, as opposed to a formal organization with precinct chairman. And, you know, we mentioned the Farm Bureau endorsement that Collier has. Um, That's a, you know... That is important. It's in. It's not surprising. Kobach has had, uh, you know, it, go, it really goes to the immigration issue. Is where Kobach has had tension with the agricultural community. But you know, that's a, those little important organizational pieces can um, can play a, a, a real role. In a now, Kansans for Life, which is the the leading anti-abortion group could play a huge role in the primary. They basically, though, are... They did an interesting move where they are endorsing both Kobach and Collier, but they are also allowing Ken Selzer to note that he is pro-life on his mailer. So it's really Jim Barnett's the only one who's an odd man 
out in that uh, scenario. Uh, Kobach, interestingly, announced it before Kansans for Life was ready to to announce it right, themselves. Right, right, He's kind of right, jumped right. the gun on them. But it's if they ha- if that group, for example, had um, had decided to favor one over the other, that would have played a really important role with social conservatives. Right. Have, fact, we, have we heard from the chamber yet? Um, I and think AFP? That, I Kansas think, AFP? I think the chamber has not made any endorsement yet. and they. But the interesting thing is that Kobach has some people in his inner circle who are very hostile to the chamber. So I think the chamber is kind of treading carefully because if Kobach does win the nomination, they are going to work, want to work on things with him right, like right. tax cuts. But there's there's a lot of areas of disagreement um, uh, between the chamber and Kobach, and that goes from things that are major ideological things like the immigration issue to things that are uh, very important to specific uh, organizations like the workers' compensation issue. Correct, He's way correct. more favorable to like right. the unions on workers' comp than uh, than the chamber. So I don't think they've leaned in anyway, but if you but there is also there is a bit there's definitely a point of tension between Kobach and the chamber, whereas I think Jeff Collier would be someone who more lines right. up. And again with them. so then we're looking at a, a final month in which the governor picks up endorsements from the Farm Bureau, maybe the chamber, you know, he's at least the Kansans for Life are on the fence. The, those are all good signs for uh, Jeff Collier, aren't they? I mean, right. again, if, I mean, if you, now Kolbach is going to, if he were sitting here, which he would not be, but if he were sitting here, would say, no, I'm a different kind of candidate. I'm draining the swamp. I'm bringing right. in Donald Trump Jr. to campaign for me. Well, and that's, so, yeah. so, so that's his approach, right? Right. I mean, his, he's kind of... You know, at this, he's he's kind of going with the rock star approach, right? right? right he had right, Ted Nugent right. come in. Yes, he has Trump Jr. coming in. He's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of Collier's going with the more slow and steady wins the race approach. But I mean, if he if Collier wins the nomination, uh, it, it it will while it while he's the sitting governor, it will be you know a huge upset. And it would have been months in the making. It, this is that it wouldn't have been something that happened overnight, but it it will be significant. It'll be a surprise yeah, without yeah. question. Without yeah. I think if we'd been betting people six months ago, as you point out, I think all the smart money was on. And Chris certainly Kobach. a year ago, if like right. you go no back question. even further, no question. Um, it, it, it looked like it was Kobach's race to lose. He had a, he had by far the smoothest campaign rollout. Now his campaign change has has changed since then. So the people who uh, man, who made that rollout. They're no longer on his campaign. Yeah, He's got right. new people. Now. All right, we, we need to move on because we're spending far too much time on fun stuff like the Republican primary and talk about the Democrats a little bit. And that seems to be a two-person race, too. Carl Brewer, maybe? I don't know. I don't I, know I'm which it as well three. as you I'm going to say it's a three-person race. But with one person who has at least the clear organizational advantage over the other two. Uh, Senator Laura Kelly has... Kathleen Sebelius is backing. She's she was neighbors with uh, Governor Sebelius in Topeka. They're old friends, and the Sebelius apparatus has um, has backed has uh, clanked into has motion very strongly backed uh, Laura Kelly. In fact, uh, arguably talked her into the race. Oh, certainly, yeah, helped recruit her into the race. And so, if you look at you know 
like you were talking about um, on the Republican side where like you can maybe read the tea leaves from these little endorsements. A lot of unions are coming out in favor of Laura Kelly. Many state lawmakers are coming out in favor of her. Um, groups like the Mainstream Coalition. So it's there's a clear ground advantage for Laura Kelly. Now, um, the other two Democratic candidates who could pull off a victory are Josh Swati, who was a former state lawmaker, served as the state secretary of agriculture, and worked in the EPA during uh, the Obama administration. Um, he's a guy from central Kansas, from Ellsworth, Kansas, uh, owns his own farm. And the, the idea of his candidacy is that he broadens the appeal of the Democratic Party. A lot of Republicans would tell you that he's the one that they'd be more afraid of. There's a question about whether or not he can win the primary. Uh, there's certain issues that have dogged him. One is um, one's abortion. He had a well. He has he has certainly shifted. I think his talking point on this from when he was a member of the legislature. He had a consistently anti-abortion. Uh, voting, voting record, record right? as a member of the legislature and groups like Planned Parenthood and the pro-choice community those are just as just as though just as Kansans for life is important in the Republican primary these groups are important they spend money they organize people in the Democratic primary and so that's a hurdle for him that said he does have he does have certainly a base of support and could pull off uh, the upset over uh, Senator Kelly Um He's been a pretty effective campaigner, yeah. done well in the debates. He's gotten his name out there a little bit. I mean, there, you know, six yeah. months ago you wouldn't have bet on Josh Swati either. Certainly, and and you know, and think about the fact that Jim Ward, who came into the race with a lot of the House Minority Leader with a lot of high expectations, he's no longer in. He right, he, he, he opted out. So it, it's you could maybe see it as just a race between. Laura Kelly and Josh Swati. I would say Carl Brewer, the former mayor of Wichita's, maybe he's the sleeper pick. And I don't, I, it, it, I'd be skeptical that he he wins it, but he may be more competitive than I think a lot of people uh, have suggested. There was a poll; it was paid for and released by the Kelly campaign. Uh, so the Swati supporters yeah. certainly don't <laughs> put much stock in it. But that actually showed Carl Brewer ahead of Josh Swati in the number two position. Um, and I, why would that be? Because of Wichita I think people it, know I think him in Wichita? One is Wichita has a large amount Democrats. of Democratic voters. And now that Jim Ward's out of the race, where, do you where are they going to go? Well, they know Carl Brewer. He was their mayor for eight years. And, you know, he. one thing that is you can't uh, overlook is uh, Carl would be the first African-American governor of Kansas, and that's a very important First constituent. statewide ever. Yeah, very important constituency right. in the Democratic primary. So in places like Wyandotte County, Sedgwick County, Shawnee County, that could be uh, significant. He's also, I mean, he's taken some policy stances that uh, that could move constituencies that don't always vote. He is the, all of the Democratic candidates have come out in favor of medical marijuana. He is the only one calling for full legalization. Um, uh, Swati is open to he he wants decriminalization, which right, is just right, a step a down from right. that. But um, you know that's that can move people maybe in places like like Wichita and KCK and Lawrence. And Lawrence. Oh yeah, right, yeah, Manhattan. Manhattan. Right, right. Um, All the college towns. Yeah. So I mean, it, there's still I think some question about his fundraising ability. Uh, I, I think a lot of people who would have been open to Carl Brewer 
at first that you know there's a different amount of money that you need to run statewide than you need to run in local elections right. in Kansas which aren't partisan and so like that so his fundraising numbers that we first saw uh, last year were pretty pretty underwhelming and so that said you know with Ward out of the race maybe he can really outperform in Wichita and play you know a stronger role in yeah. the primary than a lot do, of people do, thought. Is, do you think it's possible you know Democrats are clearly hungry for the state house after eight years of Sam Brownback is it possible that voters will approach their choice strategically on the Democratic side and say, in essence, I, you know, I, I, I judge all three of these major candidates the same way. Who has the best chance of beating a Chris Kobach or a Jeff? There, there's certainly going to be some voters who right. think that way, but I, I don't know that. that may be I don't know that the average right. voter right. thinks that way. And but I will say, I mean, what you see of these three candidates, they represent, uh, they they all represent different ideas about the future of of the Democratic Party. Uh, Jaswati being from rural Kansas uh, speaking to a constituency that maybe Kansas Democrats haven't done a very good job right. of reaching out to you can almost well well Kander's actually a Kansas City guy but like but one thing that people lauded Jason Kander in Missouri was that he knew how to kind of reach out to those non-urban communities right. as well. You can see him as someone like that. Plus Josh Foddy yeah. is young yeah. and he's aggressive yeah. and he has some experience and he's a good campaigner. I mean, all of that stuff in ways that Laura Kelly maybe right. not, maybe not as visible, maybe not as right. certainly dynamic on the trail, although I think sometimes that's overblown a little bit. Oh, and but. she's certainly, I mean, she's very sharp on policy. I mean, she, this is, keep in mind, she's the ranking Democrat right. on the Senate Budget I Committee. I talked to a Democrat last week who said, hey, wait a minute. People think that that Chris Kobach would just uh, really, uh, uh, you know, get after Laura Kelly in a debate, and the Democrats said, "No, wait, you just wait." She's, I mean, she knows her stuff. She's the ranking Democrat <laughs> in the Senate Budget Committee, ranking Democrat on the Senate Health Committee. She knows Paula. I mean, she's very right. sharp. In a way, on Chris Kobach argued, and I mean, not. so and she's the only she's the only woman in the case right. in, in the race, uh, and. That could be very significant in 2018. If you look around the country, uh, the female candidates are, are, you know, there's been a lot of talk just recently about uh, candidates on the left, but a larger trend has been female candidates uh, performing very strongly, um, you know, in the kind of post-Trump right. Hillary so, uh, scenario. And then, you know, Carl Brewer, that's that's important for, you know, the, the fact that we have a, um, you know, a candidate who can who could break that 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 barrier um so who's the favorite definitely laura kelly would be if today yeah would be the favorite yeah i but i don't don't think she has it locked up right it's i'd still say both swati and brewer there are scenarios where you could see them both performing so in both parties really the next month will matter yeah. And it isn't a sense that, boy, this thing is really, you know, Colliers to lose or Kobox or any candidate, on, right. you know, on the Democratic side either, that, that the next month will matter. We're going to see, we're going to have the fundraising reports at the end of July, and that's going to tell us a lot, you right. know. And if. Uh, but we're not seeing, uh, let's wrap up this part of the discussion, Brian. We don't see a lot of TV ads a month out. We're not seeing a lot of door-to-door on the Democratic side. Yeah. We don't even see the candidates over here that much. We, we've so that's seen, interesting. We've seen a little bit on the Republican side, but I think one thing that should have Democratic voters 
a little bit concerned, and and maybe this is people figuring I got to hold on to it for the general, and I'll I'll try to just win off the ground game. Right. But um, you're right. I mean, there and remember the Democratic fundraising was not very strong. You would think it would have been stronger, but either because of the division, you know, they Dems aren't used to having primaries in Kansas. Um, it it was you know. Kelly had the strongest on the Democratic side, but she got in the latest. Um, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, where she's at on, when we file the when we see the July report. Right, you but know, uh, don't she, you think, you know, Brian, that the the race resets August eighth? Oh, I mean, so, the reality yeah. is, I think both candidates in both parties are a little bit on the down low. Because the primary is a party thing. I mean, you register by party in in Kansas, so or you can register as unaffiliated. But unlike Missouri, where you don't register by party, so so I think there's some sense that let's keep this, you know, as quiet, motivate our base, whatever right. that would be, and then August eighth, we take a look at the scenery and say, okay, now what do we? And do? I know I'll note that there is a, a Democratic uh, debate in Topeka. This week, uh, Jonathan Shoreman of the Wichita Eagle will be covering right. it for the Star and the so Eagle, we'll and that. you know, look for the coverage of that, and you know, we'll maybe that there. will tell us a little bit about where, where the Democratic. All right, let's spend is. about five minutes uh, because I'm not. I, we'll come back to this at a later date, but let's go to the Kansas Third District, take a break. We'll come back to Missouri because um, we are running a bit long. But um, so we've got the field in the Kansas Third on the Democratic side. Let's assume Kevin Yoder is the nominee, even though he does have some opposition in the primary, but he makes it through August 7th. I think we all agree. Who do we like in the third? I, a month it, out, it's uh, still an amazing— It's such a head-scratcher, yeah. and I would say, you know, I had a conversation with Joan Wagner, the former uh, chair of the Kansas Democratic Party, and what she Very said— Very smart woman, by the way. What she said to me was, the Democrats— and the Republicans have the same problem. The Democrats in the third district, the Republicans in the second district, where there are too many candidates and not enough money. Uh, the Democrats do not have a clear front runner, and I can't, with the lack of public polling and the fact that the, nobody has particularly stood out on the fundraising. Right, I know right. Brent Welder's people are going to get upset, and Tom Neerman's people are going to get upset that I said that, but. Uh, there's not a clear front runner in that race. Andrea Ramsey, who dropped out uh, uh, late last year, would have been the closest thing to a, a front runner in that race. Welder and Nierman have competed for that. Sharice Davids, Mike McCammon. There's been other people who have seemed to to pop up, but it's Jay Sidey. Jay, and you know, one thing that people count out Sidey, whose fundraising has not been strong. I'll, I'll note. Uh, he is going to have some name recognition just by being the nominee. Right. I mean, I think that's his year. play in yeah. some ways. As people, Democrats go into the voting booth, I I don't recognize any of these names. Therefore, I'll go with the one I know. In fact, when we say there's no front runner, that that understates the case. I mean, you get the sense that people don't even know who these candidates are, let alone who who might be one of the favorites a month out. That's just fascinating to me. In part because. Other than Jay Sidey, we've never heard of these people before. In well, the they're, they're, it's, it's pretty not much like all politi- state legislators. It's pretty much all political newcomers. It's, right. There's not any, you know, and that's an interesting thing. You, you theoretically, you could have ran, you know, someone who had served as mayor of KCK or Correct. or of a, a or you know, state legislator, or state legislator, former state um, legislator. But um, it's all political newcomers. Uh, some very interesting, some interesting candidates. Uh, some of them are new to the state. You know, Brent Welder 
uh, has has moved to the the state last year. He's an attorney. He he was an organizer for Bernie Sanders and worked as a uh, a delegate for and has him. been endorsed by has Sanders. been endorsed by Sanders. And so that's that. And ha- he has some labor ties, which are important. And he's and got a lot of the uh, the the people who were for um, Acacia Cortez in New York are backing Brent Welder. So if you're part of that whole, if you're looking at that social democratic right. push, he, he's an interesting candidate. But isn't um, Sharice Davids also talking to that same constituency? So she's certainly she's talking to progressive young woman groups, progressive. and she's very interesting as well. She served as a White House fellow in the final year of the Obama White House. Um, she is Native American and she is LGBT. So she would be historic on multiple fronts. She'd be the first uh, openly gay uh, member of the Kansas delegation. She would be the first. Na- she, there's several right. women who are running nationwide who could be the first Native American right. female uh, elected uh, to to Congress. And so she, I mean, she would break some barriers. She's certainly. I mean, she was interesting when it was announced that Mike Pence. Was um, was going to come to the Kansas City area to have a fundraiser for Kevin Yoder? She was actually the only one who uh, put out a statement about Pence's record. You had, you know, you had the candidates uh, using it as a way to tie Yoder to Trump. Uh, both Nierman and Welder did that, but she's the only one who who looked at Mike Pence's record as the governor of Indiana, and she said that you know he he's you know. He basically stands opposed to the inclusion that she stands for. I'm, I'm right, right. butchering what her comment right, right. was, but it, she was the, she is really running um, uh, on a message of inclusion and of representation. Right. Um, and we should mention Sylvia Williams here so, too, because women yeah. have been winning in primaries and for House seats on the Democratic and, side, and, Sylvia, and so those are important. And things Sylvia to Williams and Mike McCammon are, are two candidates who are also worth watching, where the, both come from the business community. Um, both are speaking to that more moderate voice. And this is one where you you talk about voting strategically. There are people who are who are within the party apparatus who are concerned that if Welder wins that he's he's or David he's maybe too far left for the the district and they look at a Nearman who's a, a teacher or and I think the mainstream or, coalition yeah. didn't they they endorse yeah. Nearman I think yeah. that's so if an you, interesting and thing. if you look at near so that those those groups kind of look at Nearman and Williams and McCammon as the candidates who might and be able really, to win the moderate republicans and that's that really the democratic dynamic across the country, isn't it? The decision between a more moderate sort of centrist Democrat and whether you do that or whether you go to the sort of left right. uh, it's, enthusiasm, resistance, whatever you and want to I call mean, it. And I mean, would, I would say it's that's kind of going to be the challenge of who can get people to the polls in a race where there's not necessarily a lot of money yet. And there's, as you said, there's not, well, we've certainly paid attention to it. Uh, it's not, I think, at the forefront of everybody's minds yeah. as much as the governor's Which race. Which candidate on the Democratic side would worry Republicans the most in the third? <sighs> that I is asked a tough question. Yeah, I mean, I I know, you know, I th- maybe they'd I think... be equally worried or not worried about any of them, uh, Brian, because their race is going to be their race. I, you know, I think um, one thing to note about. Yoder is Yoder is clearly positioning himself as he often does election time as more moderate than maybe his voting record always has been. But we call that the Claire McCaskill strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Works works for both parties, (laughs) right? Yes. Um, And so 
maybe you know maybe one of those more moderate candidates would have him they'd be competing for more of the same voters i'd say you know in in fairness both obviously welder and davids i think the argument they would make is that they are the ones who can bring new voters to the polls right. people who haven't act necessarily been going to the polls yeah my own argument history. has been in that race and then we'll take a break my own argument has been that yoder is in pretty good shape unless there's just an overwhelming democratic wave, which could happen still. And in that case, it really won't matter who the Democrats nominate. It's just going to be that he gets it's drowned a, in an, it's an anti-Trump wave. It's an interesting case where, on paper, the third district is the district that looks to be the best pickup for the Democrats, just based off of right. demographics, the makeup of the district, the fact that it's, you know, you, you, you both have an urban center in right. KCK and you have... Uh, suburban Johnson County, and those are the districts that are starting nationwide. But everybody thought that two years Democrats. ago. Democrats, yeah, people always giant. think that. Yeah. But the but the thing is, the second district is where the Democrats actually. It, it is a tr- very hard Trump leaning district, but it is the district where the Democrats have a candidate in Paul Davis who has better name recognition than all of the Republicans in the field, and has been out fundraising all of them. So it's it's almost one of those things where if uh, if Paul if Paul had lived in Johnson. County and was running against Kevin Yoder. Yeah, we did. That would be a very competitive race. Uh, But Yoder has certain incumbent advantages. He's also risks the anti-Trump backlash. But whereas Davis, then is is run. It's is it's in the weird. If you cover the second district at all, it feels like almost that like. Davis, who is looking to flip the seat, almost feels like the incumbent because it's so unclear who the Republican in that race is going to be. All right, great. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll spend just a few minutes on the Missouri side of the state line. A reminder, you're on Deep Background. Dave Elling with the Star's editorial board now back with Brian Lowry, my friend and colleague. Let's go to the Missouri side of the state line. Uh, The primary not quite as compelling. We think we know who's going to win, even though there are lots of R's and lots of D's on the I think there's actually 21 people who are running for U.S. Senate in Missouri, but it it really only feels like two. It's it's almost it's news that there is a primary. Um, On the Democratic side, there are actually a few uh, people who have – who have signed up to primary uh, Claire McCaskill, Coffee Wright, who's an activist from St. Louis, Angelica Earl, who's a right. a young woman from that area as well. Uh, but I, if you, I don't think any of them have raised any significant money. I don't think anyone doubts that Claire McCaskill is the nominee. The, the party apparatus is fully behind her, and, and you fully expect her to cruise. Right. Uh, but to but the let's primary. let's pause here and just note that even though we expect McCaskill to win the primary and Josh Hawley uh, to win the Republican primary, the margin matters in some ways. I mean, if Hawley wins with 55% of the vote, it's a, it says one thing. If he wins with 85%, it says something quite different. And I, you know, that's true for Claire right. McCaskill, too. If she only gets 60% of the Democratic right. vote, that, that says something politically. And it also tells the campaign something, too. And I doubt that's going to be the case for McCaskill. But I think for Hawley, what you aimed at is exactly right, where there has been a question of how enthusiastic are Republican voters about Attorney General Josh Hawley. Particularly Greitens voters, Eric Greitens voters. It's interesting, Hawley was heavily recruited into this race. Jack Danforth was the most public, but you had 
Vice President Pence called him to encourage him to run. It was everybody was rolling out the red carpet, Mitch and they McConnell. and they kind of pushed Dan Wagner, yeah. who had been building that campaign apparatus aside to clear the way. And so, Holly has been acting as though he ha- is the presumptive nominee for quite some time, and now the party is acting that way as well. The party actually they. Uh, they suspended Rule 11, which allows the RNC to start spending money on Holly's Republican behalf National Committee in right. a um, in a in a which there's a rule that bars the RNC from spending in states with a contested primary unless they get authorized by the state party. The state party voted 12 to one to uh, executive committee voted 12 to one to do that, which means that you now have that national money. It's going to come in, and it's coming in for Holly, and it's. it's it's almost a surprise they didn't do it sooner, but one thing this does is it probably helps boost him in the primary but because you're right. If he too, only wins, right. if he only wins with around fifty percent of the vote, there's going to be some alarm bells that go off. Everyone he's running against in that primary has are has never held political office. You have Austin Peterson, who's a Kansas City man. He had ran for the Libertarian nomination for president um, two years ago. You have uh, Cortland Sykes, who's right. a very colorful character, who uh, um, has a robust yeah, six thousand dollars in the bank. Videos. Yeah. <laughs> you have um, Tony Minetti, who is a um, uh, retired Air Force pilot, who uh, actually uh, uh, Sarah Palin uh, came to Kansas City to hold a rally for, uh, with Which the whole idea of right? blowing up. She doesn't want to just drain the swamp. She wants to blow up the swamp. Right. So she wants the stuff. But isn't bomb. the but but isn't the uh, inclusion of RNC money in this race before the primary an indication that some pros are worried about Holly's showing and campaigning and and where we're at at this point in the cycle? So Peterson and and also uh, Mark Anthony Jones, who is the ja- the the lone dissenting vote was was from Jackson County's oh, Republican chair, Mark Anthony Jones, who is a very outspoken yes, Holly Trump. and critic. a Trump guy. Um, and uh, they certainly see it as a way to try and uh, boost Holly. Uh, it's what I what I will note is when I talk to Mark Anthony Jones. His argument is that the grassroots are unenthusiastic about Holly, and he pointed to, among other things, like you've said, the fact that he came out against Greitens, because he said many people in the grassroots uh, were 100% in on Greitens. Greitens still had an outspoken base of support, even right. as he was uh, embattled. Yeah, and um, it was it was not insignificant. I mean, maybe a third of the Republican Party, 30%, 40%. Uh, were ready to go to the mat for Eric Greitens. And not only did Josh Hawley oppose them, but very visibly did so. And uh, Hawley, I will point to, contrast with Kevin Yoder, who put out the letter telling Attorney General Jeff Sessions to stop the family separations, uh, became outspoken about it. Obviously, there had already been public outrage, but eventually became outspoken about that issue. To Holly, state Holly never broke with Trump during has never broken with Trump during that controversy uh, over family separations. Hasn't broken with him on the during the controversy of the tariffs, which puts you know yes. a lot of Missouri farmers uh, you know in some economic uh, risk and and labor he, unions he, since too. he got the Trump endorsement, yeah. he has been very 
it's been very noticeable that he has not broken publicly with Trump really on any issue. And one thing that says is he is thinking about the primary results, that he wants to have those Trump Republicans fully on his side and has obviously done the calculus that, you know, he needs to. Well, right, because he's lost the Greitens people, at least theoretically, and the Greitens and Trump people were in many places one and the same. And so to, in essence, alienate Republicans on the basis of Eric Greitens and Donald Trump would almost be suicidal in a statewide race for for a guy like Josh Hawley. Correct. But, I mean, one thing we just need to note about Hawley is the state party and national party apparatus is fully in his support. Uh, When Mike Parson had his first visit to the White House since becoming governor, one of the first things Trump says to him, and how's Josh? I hear Josh is doing great for us. Right, and what does that tell us? Parson assured him that we're going to be working hard for Josh. Right, and that tells us that on August 8th, that race really begins too. the, the, The primary has some importance, but by and large, the third-party money, the dark money will start pouring in because Missouri uh, always was considered a toss-up state and now may be one of the most important toss-up states in the right. nation. Well, I think money's already pouring in. Right. There's already a lot of groups on both sides of the aisle that are getting involved. And so that's the the, the, pri- it, it, the primary in that, uh, in that race does feel a little bit of a formality. I'd be skeptical that you see... Um, you know, one of these other candidates perform right. very competitively with Holly. But as you point out, you know, if they do get a significant chunk or even collectively get a significant chunk, there will be some people who look right. at that and question and how people will he is say ahead of the general election. With this is meaningless, but people will still look at who got the most votes in the primary as a sign of turnout, enthusiasm. I mean, it doesn't mean anything at all, right. but people will look at that. And I also get the sense the primary the next month on the Missouri side will be a chance for both sides to try out whatever they think will be important uh, criticisms in the general. Well, and keep- You've already seen the Supreme Court a little bit. Tariffs you mentioned, well, you're exactly right. That'll be an issue. I mean, I, I do think that this is an opportunity for both sides to skirmish a little bit before August 8th. And, when and it really keep starts in mind that the right to work issue is yeah. going to be on the ballot in August. And... I think that's important for Claire McCaskill is if you talk to Lauren Arthur about um, how she she, that was a huge swing to win the that Northland seat um, by double digits that had been held by Ryan Sylvie by double digits. So for her to win that in the special election, a lot of that went to the labor community and that labor community was fired up because of right to work. They're going to come out August, and Claire McCaskill uh, needs to find a way to tap into that and make sure that that labor community comes and, out right. in November. And isn't it interesting that the and labor— sticks by her. Right, which uh, I think that's the most fascinating thing about labor as a, as a vote, uh, to the extent we can use a, you know, a blanket characterization of it, Brian, is— Labor would come out for Claire, but for Trump, too. I mean, that's what's interesting to me is that, but they won't have that option in 2018. So she may have a bit of an advantage with all the labor enthusiasm, that, particularly if tariffs become a major problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, that's uh, that's a pretty lengthy but important wrap-up a month out, Brian Lowry. Too many races. That's, well, that's no, the, the, you can the, never the, have too many races, can you, Brian? Thanks so much for being with us. Brian Lowry. 
chief political reporter for the Kansas City Star. Again, I'm Dave Helling of the Star's editorial board. Thanks for joining us. You have been on Deep Background.